Turning your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis 23. We will, uh, I will be reading the whole chapter. Um, as it is our practice to stand when we read, God, read God's Word together. Let me ask that you do that now if you're able. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us would withhold withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me. In your presence is property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered, All who went in at the city, uh, wait, answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in and at the gate of his city. No, my lord. Hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. Four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would so work in our hearts even now that you would use this, your word, uh, to conform us more and more to the image of Christ and to long for his day. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. You ever, you ever wonder what God's doing? You ever have those moments when you're watching the news or Facebook? or your Twitter feed, or whatever. 
And you're thinking to yourself, is God really paying attention to this world? Because God says He's at work. I'm pretty sure the Bible says that God actually cares about the life of His people. I'm pretty sure the Bible teaches me that God is sovereign and that God's in control over His creation. And yet, war rages on. And yet, people can still walk into public schools carrying weapons and kill teachers and administrators and students. And yet, people get sick and they die. The flu. I mean, the flu? There's like a shot for the flu. You know that, right? There's a shot for the flu. You can take a shot, and supposedly it's supposed to keep you from getting the flu. We know it never works. This year it didn't. It never not worked. I mean, it didn't even work once, I don't think. I, I think back in February, there was, according to a newspaper in Montgomery, the, the, the Alabama um, public health officials were investigating 87 deaths, flu-related And this was a month and a half ago. No telling what that number has become now. I'm pretty sure the Bible tells me that God's at work and yet storms still, you know, rage. Hurricanes make landfall and kill dozens, hundreds of people doing billions of dollars of damage. You can't watch the Olympics without getting political statements about gender issues, gender equality issues. You read the Bible, and then you look at the world around you, and you think, these two things don't match up. God promises He's in control. My Facebook page, my Twitter feed, the news I watch at night tells me otherwise. Is God really at work bringing about his promises. I mean, I really thought Jesus came, we sing this every Christmas, He comes to make His blessings known as far as the curse is found. Then, then why are there gunmen walking into our kids' schools? That doesn't sound to me like His blessings are being made known as far as the curse is found. Where's the new earth? Where's the new Heavens, where are the new creation? Where is God's work? This chapter is written for you. This chapter is written to make sense of that struggle. In fact, you read the first two verses of this chapter, and there are two really significant major problems just in the first two verses alone. You just read the first two verses and you're thinking, wait, there are two things in this chapter that ought not be, and I'm only two verses in. The first is, death is not supposed to be. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We weren't created to die. Death is introduced when Adam and Eve violate God's law. They introduced sin and therefore death into the world. It's not supposed to be the case that, 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 that spirit and body get separated. That body gets laid in the ground and spirit goes wherever it goes, whether you're a believer or not, only to be reunited later. That separation was not supposed to happen. That's, a, that's, a, that's an anomaly in creation introduced 
by sin. The fact that Sarah dies at all should at least make you pause, although by now we've gotten so used to it. She's not the first person to die. In fact, you can read this back in chapter 5, back in chapter 10, I think it is. There's a refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Don't let, don't let the, the, your experience with death, don't let the, the commonplace reality that death is for us desensitize you to the fact that that's really not supposed to be in that verse. Death shouldn't, shouldn't be part of our creation. Sarah lived 127 years. Those were the years of the life of Sarah. Not 128. She didn't last longer than that. She died at 127 at Hebron in the land of Canaan. You want to win a Bible trivia contest? There are a couple of you in here that will... This will, this will be really important to you. You want to win a Bible trivia contest? Sarah is the only female in the entire Bible whose age we know at her death. Eve? Mary? Mary's cousin Elizabeth? Ruth? Naomi? We don't know any of them. This is the only woman whose age we know at her death. That says something about her, her place in Israel's history. That says something about her role and function and, and, and importance in the life of God's people. Abraham's wife, Isaac's mother, dies. She dies in Hebron. She dies in the land of Canaan. And, and there's the second problem. There's the second struggle. Because here's... The, the problem with, with where she dies isn't, isn't so much with what it's called. It, it's, it's what it's not called. By now, shouldn't it be called, not Canaan, but Abraham? Shouldn't it by now be called maybe Isaac? Maybe, maybe Abraham and Sarah decided they've inherited the land and they've, they've decided to name it after their son Isaac. Shouldn't it have a different name by now? It shouldn't be named for one of Noah's other descendants. It should by now be named Abraham. It should be something different. Do the math for a second. I know some of you are going, wait a minute, it's Sunday. I don't work on Sunday, so I'm not doing math. We don't do that here. Um, it's been... Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis 12 when God called him and said, follow me, I'm going to take you to a land that I will give you and you will have descendants. And, and we've seen that promise reiterated over and over again several times in the last several chapters. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars in the sky, like the dust of the earth. That's a bunch. And this place is going to be your place. And, and Abraham was 75 years old at that point. It was 25 years before Isaac was born. Abraham was 100 before he finally had the first of, his, of, of those promised descendants. Sarah was 90. It's been now 37 years. Isaac, 37-year-old 
single man living with his parents. When Sarah dies, it's been 62 years. 62 years Abraham and Sarah have been living in a tent. 62 years since they were called to leave their homeland and to follow God and to go to the promised land and dwell there in this land that would be His, that would be made His. And yet, Sarah dies in Canaan. It's still called Canaan. It's not yet Abraham's. It's it's still named for someone else. It's not yet called Abraham. In other words... 62 years. And God still has not fulfilled the promise to Abraham. You know, some of you are younger than 37. Imagine living your entire life so far in a tent, in a land that isn't yours, no place to technically call your own, waiting. Some of you aren't 60 yet. Or some of you aren't 62 yet. 62 years since you were called to leave your home. Imagine leaving your entire life in a tent with no place to call your own. No place to say, this is my house, this is where I live, this is where my people are. Still a stranger, still an alien, still a nomad. Waiting. We complain when we have to wait 62 days. This is 62 years. And Abraham and Sarah Sarah still, Sarah dies before ever owning any property at all in the promised land. Sarah never gets to see the fulfillment of this promise in her lifetime. She dies in Canaan. The promise isn't fulfilled yet. God has said, this is what I'm doing. Abraham looks at God's word and he says, okay, I see a God who's at work, who has promised to deliver me, to give me a home, to give me descendants, to give me all of these things. And when I look at the world around me, I don't see it. Abraham's struggle is your struggle. Abraham's tension is your tension. Abraham totally understands exactly where you live. I see in God's Word a man who's sovereign, a God who's sovereign and ruling over creation. And I look at the world around me and the two don't match. Abraham's living in a tent. Not to mention, where's the rest of Abraham's family? See, we sort of skipped over this. Because it's the last few verses of chapter 22. We have this this section of just a few verses, four or five verses at the end of chapter 22, where we're told the rest of Abraham's clan is still back at home, bearing bunches of children, and doing just fine. You should feel his tension. You should feel his struggle. Abraham's people, Abraham's kinsmen are still in Haran. They're not living in a tent. 
They're living in a house they call their own. They're not waiting on God's promises. They're having children galore. They're not wandering what seems aimlessly in the world. They're living right where they have been all of these years in their home with their people seeming to do just fine. Don't don't miss that struggle. David writes about this in the Psalms. David, David recognizes that there are times when God's people look at those who oppose the church, who oppose God and His kingdom, and they seem to be prospering. And yet God's people aren't. And David says, how long is this going to keep up, O oh Lord? Is this really the way this is supposed to be? Really the, the folks out there, the world around us, those who stand opposed to you and to your kingdom, you're going to let them prosper while we struggle and wrestle and wait? Sometimes our experience in this life doesn't really match up with what we know to be true from God's Word. Abraham's people are doing just fine. He's losing his wife in a land that isn't his. you should feel his struggle. Partly because you know it. Partly because it's your struggle. Partly because you live that struggle. So after the time of mourning, Abraham needs a place to bury his wife, to bury Sarah's body. Notice verse 4. You can feel his pain. I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. I I don't own land. I really don't belong here. I live here and you let me live here, but I'm not one of you. I I don't belong here. I don't own any land. I don't have any property. I don't have anything to call my own. And and I'm a I'm a I'm a wanderer, I'm a sojourner, I'm a I'm a traveler, I'm a foreigner among you. He's been promised this land, but it's still not His. You know, you and I are foreigners. You and I are strangers and aliens. We're sojourners in this land. Turn with me for just a second. Back to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Do you hear it? You and I are sojourners. You and I are exiles. You and I are living in a land that is not our own. This world is not our home. You don't live where you will live exactly forever. You're still waiting for Christ to return. You're still waiting for 
the new heavens and the new earth, the, the recreation of all that is, we will dwell there. You're, you're, you're strangers. You're aliens. This is not your land. Abraham's struggle is our struggle. Abraham's tension is our tension. Notice how Abraham solved his uh, problem. Notice how he went about uh, solving this dilemma. You can watch this conversation. Uh, the writer Moses slows down and literally gives you blow by blow. You almost feel a little bit like you're watching a tennis match. This guy hits and then this guy hits. And you're watching that ball go back and forth from one side of the court to the other. You're watching Abraham speak, the Hittite speak. Abraham speak, the Hittite speak. You feel like you're kind of bouncing back and forth. There's this, this formal event at the city gate. It's the... It's the decision-making body of the city, verses 4 through 9. There, Abraham has witnesses. He has a a legally binding agreement that's publicly accomplished. Uh, He's basically meeting with the city officials, uh, the city council, if you will, and asks for land. He asks for a place to bury his wife. They respond, you can take what you want. We'll, we'll gladly let you... Know. I mean, who among us is going to keep from you whatever land you want? Go ahead, use what you want. We have tombs. Use our tombs. Help yourself. Jump right in. We'll treat you like one of our own. And there's the problem. Abraham couldn't be one of them. Abraham didn't want to be one of them. He didn't want... Ever for the future of, of his of his uh, ancestry of his of his descendants to ever say that, that Canaan could ever say you see Abraham's people we made them they owe us he wanted none of that he didn't want to be one of them he wanted to be different from them he demanded he asked I'll pay I'll buy I'm not going to take no gift there's a cave at the end of that field I'd really like that cave. And you get the sense that um, that Ephraim didn't want to sell just the cave. He only wanted to sell the land with the cave. He kind of wanted to sell the whole field, sort of an all or none kind of deal. And and you know how it is. You do this. I mean, it cost me ten bucks, but I mean, come on, we're friends. That's not a big deal. If it's not a big deal, don't mention the cost. If it's really not a big deal, you don't talk about how much you. If you want to give a gift, give a gift. If you want to sell something, sell something. Don't try to do both. Don't couch sale language in gift language. Don't couch a sale in gift language. I mean, it's what's a 400 shekel field between friends? Abraham, you help yourself. It's an exorbitant price, actually. It's an inflated price. But he said 400 shekels of silver, verses 17 and 18, and so Abraham reaches into his pocket and pulls out Several pounds of silver and gives it to Ephron to buy that field, to buy that, to buy that land so that he could have that cave. He needed that piece of paper made out in his name. He needed witnesses in that city council meeting saying, oh, we watched, we saw, we know this transaction happened. Ephron offered to sell the land, the field, with the cave on it. Abraham paid for it. We're witnesses. We saw it. 
we'll sign on the dotted line as evidence that, that this is exactly how it went down. Have you ever looked at the deed to your property? I did once. And only once. Because at that point, it pretty boring stuff, really. I know some people that love looking at land deeds. Surveyors, I guess, and tax assessors, they probably love deeds more than anybody else. But you know, there's, a, there's basically a line that says, if you'll find this GPS point on the globe, you'll find a little metal stick in the ground. Now you turn and walk this many feet in this direction to this other GPS point on the globe, and you'll find another metal stick in the ground. And then you turn and you walk this many feet in this direction to this point on the GPS, GPS point on the globe and you'll find another metal stick in the ground all the way around until you get back to the first one. It's, it's a, a, a piece of paper that says, here's the property. But the most important part of that deed is not just the property marked out by those metal sticks in the ground. It's the name at the bottom. It says, this piece of property belongs to you. It's yours. Something happens to me, my kids can grab hold of this deed that says, look, this piece of property says from this point to this point to this point, and you follow the curve of the road, it says, this is mine. And you're singing Woody Guthrie in your head, right? Abraham's singing Woody Guthrie already. This land is your land. This land is my land. He buys this field and now the deed to the property says, this field with the cave belongs to Abraham. You notice Moses goes out of his way to tell us a couple of times that this, this property has been deeded over to Abraham, it's now his. Abraham left his home and his family. Some of you are singing Simon and Garfunkel now. But he left his home, he left his family years and years ago. Some 62 years ago. Following where God would take him, not always knowing where that would be, not always having much more information than go and I'll stop you when you get there. And now has a new home. So convinced was he that this would be his new home. That he chose to buy land and bury his wife there. See, the practice was you bury your family where your family belongs. Well, we know where Abraham's family belongs. We read it at the end of chapter 22. They're back in Haran. That's where culturally, he should take Sarah and bury her where his family belongs. And Abraham says, no, I don't belong there anymore. That's, those aren't my people. And that's not my place. This is my place. And these are my people. And I'm burying her here in this field. 
You want to be encouraged by that? Israel is the first audience reading this. Moses is writing this probably somewhere between Egypt and the Promised Land. And so he, I don't know, nighttime stories, they gather around the campfire at the end of the day. They've, they've been walking all day long and Moses, you know, or maybe they've, they've camped for a few days and Moses has been writing. He's been inspired by the Holy Spirit writing exactly what God wants him to write. And he, he writes God's Word. And maybe at the end of the night, they, they gather around and he, he has a little nighttime reading for the Israelites. And they read this chapter and they laugh. They actually would laugh at this point, I think. <laughs> 62 years. Young Padawan. 400 years. Slaves in Egypt. Beat that, Abraham. You waited 62 whole years to get that little piece of property, to get that field, with, with, to get that deed to that field with that cave turned over to your name. And we've been now another 400 plus years. And guess what we have? The same piece of paper that says this land belongs to you. They're marching into the promised land with a down payment, with assurance that God is actually doing what He will do, that God will actually fulfill His promises because they're carrying the same deed. Abraham's left it to Isaac. Isaac left it to Jacob. And Jacob has left it to his descendants. They're carrying Jacob's bones in a box to bury him in the same cave. That's how sure they are that God's at work. That's how sure they are. That's how confident they are in God's promises. They're carrying that deed. Knowing God's taken us to the promised land. Still future tense for Israel. Right? It's still the promised land. It's not yet the received land. It's not, the, it's not yet the we now have it land. It's still promised. It's still in the future. They're still waiting for it. But they're carrying this deed that Abraham bought that field with that cave to bury his wife. Abraham's buried in it. And now they're carrying that deed saying, we're confident, we're trusting that God will give us all of this land as He has promised to us to our parents, to our great-great-great-grandparents. We're trusting that our land is still yet to come. Genesis 23 proves to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness that the wilderness will not be their home. They're not yet home. That God will fulfill His promises of a homeland for His people. Doesn't it promise the same to you? It promises to every believer that, that, that our home is not here. That our home is yet to come. That God is providing a home for us. And He's, he's building it, making it. It's still a promised land. We're still anticipating 
the day when we will get to not Israel, not a nation on this earth. Get that out of your head. We're not looking to go to Israel on the globe as it stands now. We're waiting for this earth to be consumed with fire and the new heavens and the new earth. Well, there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more struggle. There'll be no more waiting. When the world you watch on the news matches the world you read in His Word. When your experience and His promise finally match. Believer in Jesus Christ, be encouraged by that promise. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. Notice, first of all, (laughs) flying in the face of Joel Osteen, flying in the face of prosperity gospel preachers, you will not exhaust God's blessings in this life. Sarah didn't have her best life now. Go tell Sarah, you can have your best life now. I died. We didn't own any land in the promised land. But she's buried there by faith. Recognizing that this land will be their land. Recognizing that God will, when Christ returns, raise that body up out of the ground, out of that tomb, and restore her soul to her body and be reunited together. And there'll be no more weeping, no more sorrow. We do not exhaust God's blessings in this life. If you're looking for God's greatest blessings, God's richest blessings here on earth, you'll miss them. Because you won't be around in the next life to experience them. Second application. Practice was that you bury your dead where your people belong. When Abraham bought that land, he was saying, those people back in Haran are no longer my people. He was renouncing his connection to his past, to his history, to who he was, to his people, to the people that used to be his people, and that are no longer his people. He's openly associating himself with a new place and a new people. Sometimes following Christ means just that. Sometimes walking by faith means leaving family and homeland to follow Christ where He will lead. But it also means once you were not a people, and now you are a new people, a different people. You have a new family and a new home. A home not on this earth, but a home in the new heavens and the new earth. Third application, um, death is real. Death is our experience in this life. A couple of weeks ago, Nancy and I drove back to Oxford, Mississippi for a funeral of a couple of man. The couple was very dear to us when we lived there. Our second trip to Oxford ever. Um, house, doing some house hunting. We stayed with them and they were dear friends the whole time we were there. She got up a couple Thursday mornings ago Found her husband sitting in his chair with his devotion open. Dead. 
Death is a reality. But he doesn't get the last word. Because someone else has been in the tomb for you. Someone else has experienced death for you. Someone else was put in a tomb also, not one that he owned, it was borrowed. He wasn't going to need it very long. And he's conquered death. So that yes, we might walk through death, but it is something we walk through. It's not something we walk into. We walk through it because on the other side is new life. Because we anticipate by faith the return of Christ and our bodies being reunited with our souls forever. Christ suffered death. But He's defeated death. So that we walk through death, not hopeless, but as those who have hope in a life that is to come. Finally, fourth application. To Abraham, 62 years seems slow for God to fulfill His promises. For the Israelites, 62 years was nothing. It was well over 400 by that time. We've now 2,000 years since Christ died on that cross. We're now 2,000 years since Christ promised to return. We're at the point where we're thinking, this is entirely too long. I'm starting to wonder. I just don't know if He's actually coming back or not. I'm starting to doubt. The world around me tells me this is all there is. You better enjoy it now. Because there's nothing more to come. And then we read 2 Peter, our New Testament reading a few minutes ago. God's not slow the way you and I count slow. He's not bound by time the way you and I are bound by time. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. We don't know when He's coming. That doesn't make His return less true. That doesn't make His return less reliable. That doesn't make His return less trustworthy. In fact, for that matter, this table is a temporary table. We celebrate the Lord's death at the Lord's Supper. There's a phrase. You're used to it by now. Until He comes. When we won't need this table anymore. Because we'll be with Him. Alive and well. Be encouraged. Yeah, the world around you may tell you, your experience may tell you to doubt God's promise. But what God has promised, He will deliver. And we see a down payment of that, the beginning of that right here in Genesis 23. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You for Your faithfulness to Your Word, to Your promises to accomplish that which You have said You will accomplish Father, we pray that our lives would reflect anticipating life in the promised land. We pray that our, our lives here on this earth, even now, would reflect the hope and anticipation and joy of life in the world that is to come. That we would use our gifts and talents, our money, our resources, all of it, 
to invest not in this world, but in the next. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.